We've talked about the toolbox killers before. This one has a similar name that people get mixed up a lot. The toy box killers. But even though their names sound familiar, when you listen to their cases, it is very clear that they are not similar at all. The toolbox killers murdered outside of their moving van, kidnapping and killing randomly. But the toy box killer seemed to be a lot more careful, planning his every move. And when he murdered somebody, he hit them so well that we still have not been able to find them. All we have is a notebook depicting the murders and a toy box full of horrors. Hey guys, and welcome back to my podcast. I'm your host, Lulu, and it's great to hear from everybody again. If any of you guys are familiar with my website or have seen it before, um, you'll know that it's kind of been a work in progress. I did actually put up some new cover art from one of my artists here at Confess Obsessed, and I like really love it. Um, it's very behind on my sources and things like that, but I'm, I'm working on it. I'll get there. I know I've been sucky at that. But if you're interested in seeing the art that my artist did, it is up on the website. It's the new banner and I love it. On top of this, I want to give you guys a heads up. They are cutting down a tree outside of my house right now. Not my tree, it's my neighbor's tree. And I have put off recording for as long as I could in hopes that they would finish. They've been doing it since like 6am and it's, they are still doing it. I walked outside there earlier before I laid my son down for a nap to kind of look and they looked like they were done and then literally right as I like sat down to record, they started doing more stuff out there. So if you hear any weird noises, that's them. I'm going to try my best to edit it out and record around it, but I'm just giving you a heads up. They decided to cut down a tree today. Anyways, I want to put a quick disclaimer on today's episode. A lot of people cannot stomach the story of the toy box killer. It is a very nasty, grisly story. There's lots of pictures you can find online, a lot of things like that. So just a warning, it is kind of a harder story. If you have children around, I would recommend not listening to it. It's talks a lot about, you know, sex and murder and torture and things like that. So that's your warning. As you guys know here, we cover the nitty gritty. We cover everything. So you really shouldn't need a warning if you continue to listen to Confessed Obsessed because I do feel like those kind of things are important to talk about. But I wanted to put it in just because it is more grisly than we normally cover. Anyways, no updates in my life. I hope you guys liked our first Whatever Wednesday we posted. Um, I am going to remind you that is going to be once a month, so that'll be right now at least on the first Wednesday of every month. Um, so far, it's gotten quite a bit of love. There's been a lot of listens on it, and I really hope you guys liked, you know, having a co-host, and I figured that would be really good for us. We would cover a wide variety of things and also be able to have a co-host pop on here every once in a while. 
Um, as of right now, you can expect just the one co-host. I do have somebody else, but she's going through some personal stuff right now, and I don't want to pressure her to come onto the podcast right now. And, you know, I have some other people that have expressed a want to be on the podcast, but who are also going through personal stuff. So just plan on Ray right now. She had so much fun. She said it was a little funny her first time recording. You know, she's not sure when to say things interjecting or anything like that, but she's warming up and I'm really excited to bring more content with Ray to you guys. But anyways, with that, you know, quick note there, I don't really have any updates for you guys. So let's get into today's episode. Today's episode is the toy box killer. Now, the toy box killer is one singular killer, unlike the toolbox killers, which had two, this singular person is David Parker Ray. I say singular because really this was his thing. He did have some helpers, it sounds like, but we'll get into those guys in a little bit. We are going to start with David Parker Ray. Now, David was born on November 6th, 1939 in New Mexico. His parents were Cecil Ray and Nettie Ray. Cecil, his father, was an alcoholic who had hypersexual disorder. Hypersexual disorder is a disorder that leads most people to be obsessed with pornography. Somebody with this disorder will often begin to act on this addiction so much that it, of course, starts to negatively affect their health, jobs, or relationships. It basically controls your life. One reason that it starts to control these aspects of this person's life is because a lot of the times they won't eat very well or take care of themselves because they are so obsessed with, you know, pornography and things like that. They call out of work all the time, leading them to lose their jobs. It will negatively impact their relationships because these people would become so obsessed with pornography that they no longer want to have sex with their significant other or really pay much attention to their significant other. This of course causes issues and that is really what his father struggled with, hypersexual disorder, and he didn't really go and get any help for it. On top of all of the normal things that come with, you know, this disorder, the health job relationships, he began to supply David, his son, with magazines. Now these magazines depicted what his father's fantasies were. They weren't just normal pornographic magazines. They had a lot of sadomasochistic. Now, if you don't know what that is, that is when somebody inflicts pain on another person or humiliates them. Just like all kinks, this can be done in a safe, controlled environment between two consenting people. But because David was so young and looking at these porn magazines that were pretty extreme for his young brain, he never really made that connection. The authorities believe that this is where his obsession with raping and hurting women came from. Now, just like bondage and everything else that we talk about that is a more extreme kink, I do not want anybody to feel like that is the reason that he became a torturer and a killer. That is not the reason at all. You can practice any kink in a safe, controlled environment. And like I said at the beginning, it has to be with consenting people. But if you are just taking photos and, you know, looking at porn magazines, 
There is no way to really know that that is a consenting thing. So for a young boy to look at that without already knowing that it was consenting or just being old enough that it's kind of obvious that they were consenting to it, he didn't know that and it just looked like a man was inflicting pain onto a woman sexually, if that makes any sense. I don't ever want anybody to come after anybody for their kinks and what they like. Just because some people like, you know, pain inflicted on them and better to be tied up does not mean they're ever going to be a serial killer or a torturer or their significant other will ever become like that. Interestingly enough, when I was doing research on David, I didn't see any information about his mother. I did see though that when his father was drunk, he often took out his frustrations on his mother. So David would end up witnessing his father abusing his mother as well. This obviously paired up with the pornographic magazines that he was looking at, made David's young mind think that it was okay to treat women like this and that it was okay to abuse and hurt them if you were mad at them or for sexual reasons or anything like that. David also grew up very poor. They didn't have money to live in their own place, so they grew up with David's grandparents. I did see as well David's grandfather was also abusive. Now, of course, David was already going through a lot, and as he grew up, he was weird, awkward. Nobody really wanted to talk to him. We see that a lot in every serial killer and, you know what I mean, every case. And because of this, it's not a shocker that he didn't have friends. A lot of his peers didn't like him very much. And he slowly started going down the same path that his father did, becoming obsessed with the porn magazines that he had acquired from his father. Then he would go on to start drinking and using drugs at a young age to try and cope with everything he was going through. Despite all of this, he would go on to graduate high school and move on to work as an auto mechanic. Until he got bored of that job, he decided he was going to go and work for the army for a while. In the army, I am unsure why, but they ended up giving him an honorable discharge, returning him home. David would go on to marry and divorce four different times until he ended his marriage and divorce streak with his very last wife. They believe that David began his killing and torturing spree in the mid-1950s, but they honestly don't have a definite date. David was living in Elephant Butte when he decided he was going to build his dream. He would spend $100,000 creating his perfect hangout spot spending hours of his days in this semi-trailer that was parked in his yard. He would soundproof it, he would put homemade tools inside, other store-bought tools, and added a videotape that he would use occasionally. Now let's talk about this hangout spot, this trailer. This trailer would gain the nickname The Toy Box, which is why this case is called The Toy Box Killer case. This is what David actually would refer to this semi-trailer as. In a very morbid way, David viewed this as a play area for him to play with his victims using toys that he had put in it. On top of this, David would also hang up pictures that he had drawn 
of the different ways that he would torture women in this toy box. So while they spent time in there, they could stare at these horrific drawings. During the torture or during the downtime, if we go back to these toys, they were a multitude of things. These included, you know, store-bought whips and straps and sex toys. He also had syringes and electric shock equipment. And he had a leg spreader that he had made, different bars, chains, different blades, saws. You guys, this list goes on and on and on. He had literal dildos with spikes, like nails, that he had like nailed into these wooden dildos that he would use on people. So it was a horrific place to be in. On top of that, he had a gynecologist chair that he would usually strap them in so they couldn't get away. And he had different wooden structures that he had built that would hold these women down in different positions that he wanted them to be in. Most of the time, the leg spreaders that he made or any of these wooden things to hold people down would cause their bones to pop out of their sockets while they were being held down. And obviously they couldn't move or bend when they were in these. And you can just imagine how much pain they were already in because their legs and their hips and stuff were popping out of sockets from being held down in certain ways. Now I saw some weird con conflicting evidence. I saw that this went on with his current, like, last wife. I also saw that it was a girlfriend. I am unsure about that tidbit. But either way, what normally would happen once this toy box was done being created is David would recruit his either wife or girlfriend, and they would get into a vehicle and begin driving around. They would find a girl that they both liked, and they would decide that she was the one that they were kidnapping. Working together, they would knock them out, tie them up, and throw them into their vehicle and take them back to the toy box. This victim would wake up in the toy box, and they would begin to play a very famous audio recording that David had put together himself before they started picking up these women. If I remember right, you can go and listen to this recording if you want to. It is available. Um, I didn't listen to it and seek it out just because I wasn't really interested in hearing it. I'm going to be honest with you guys. But this recording basically told the women that were sitting in this toy box where they were. He also explained what was going to happen to them. He would give them a list of rules and expectations of things that he expected out of them. One of these rules were that the women that were kidnapped were to only refer to him as master, and they were only ever allowed to speak if he spoke to them first. He also went to explain that after he was done with them and ready to let them go, he would severely drug them over the course of about three days. This would cause them to forget everything that happened to them and to forget about David. Now, even though David was recruiting his significant other, whether that be wife or girlfriend, they did not participate all of the time. Most of the time, David would spend hours in there with these women who they both referred to as their slaves alone, with the significant other inside or doing errands or just not really caring all that much. But sometimes he would bring in his significant other to help. Sometimes he would call his friends over to help. And if that wasn't bad enough, 
Sometimes he would even bring his dog in to also help. One of David's favorite thing, though, to do to these women would be to inflict pain onto them. If you think about those magazines that he used to look at, he grew up looking at people being in pain. Because of this, he would also position his victims in a way so they could watch what David was doing at all times. He could watch their faces twist up in pain or horror as they watched what he was doing to them. David would hold these women for up to six months at a time sometimes, torturing them, raping them, feeding them only once a day. These girls were in literal hell. Then, when he was bored of these women, he did exactly what he said he was going to do. He would fill their system up with drugs in an attempt to make them forget what had happened in those months, and then he would just let them go, deciding to move on to find somebody else. In March of 1999, David's kidnapping, raping, and torturing would come to an end. David and his significant other would be walking through a parking lot one day where David would approach a woman and tell her that he was an undercover cop and that she was being arrested for sex work. For some reason, this woman would follow him willingly. If I remember right, when I first heard of this story, I heard that it was because she was a sex worker, but I am unsure if that is true or not. I did not see that in my own personal research, but either way, she would follow him back to his vehicle and climb inside. Instead of taking her to jail, because he was not an undercover cop, David would drive her to his home, chaining her up in his toy box and proceeding to play the recording for her that he played for all of his victims. Once she was tied up and listened to the recording, her rape and torture would begin. I want to bring in some quotes of this tape that she was subjected to, just so you can kind of know really what was said. On this recording, David would say things like, quote unquote, I get off on mind games. After we get completely through with you, you're going to be drugged up real heavy. With a combination of sodium pentothal and phenobarbital. They are both hypnotic drugs that will make you extremely susceptible to hypnosis, autohypnosis, and hypnic suggestion. You're going to be kept drugged like that for a couple of days while I play with your mind. By the time I get through brainwashing you, you're not going to remember a fucking thing about this little adventure. Now, sodium pentotho is usually used as an anesthetic, and interestingly enough, it was actually originally used as an anesthetic in lethal injections. This would be because it would affect you almost immediately. When this was used in lethal injections, the person would usually be injected with up to 20 times the normal amount. And phenobarbital is a prescription medication that they use to treat seizures, insomnia, and people who suffer from epilepsy. It is also used as a sedative and can be used as a hypnotic drug. For the next three days, David and his significant other would rape and torture Cynthia until one day she finally got her lucky break. David would go to work one day, leaving his significant other with Cynthia, who would probably be out there raping and torturing or doing whatever. But either way, she was out near Cynthia. Now, David's significant other would get a call 
and she would walk away, not realizing that she left the keys to Cynthia's chains in her reach. Cynthia not knowing what was going to happen to her and knowing that she probably only got a glimpse of what was going to happen knew this was her only chance. She grabbed the keys and began to attempt to get out. This is when David's significant other would hear her trying to get out and would attempt to stop her. His significant other would smash a lamp across Cynthia's head in an attempt to stop her, but because she was pumped so full of adrenaline, it didn't even slow her down. She grabbed an ice pick, which was one of the toys that David used to torture people, and stabbed David's significant other in the neck with it. She would collapse as Cynthia successfully unlocked herself and escaped the toy box. She would then run down the street, naked, bleeding, with only an iron collar around her neck, knocking on door after door, attempting to get somebody to answer and help her. Finally, a neighbor opened up. Seeing her state and the panic that she was in, they let her in, let her hide from her captors who were probably looking for her and allowed her to call the cops. They were easily arrested. She knew their names. She knew the house that she'd escaped from. And when the news began to spread about what happened, suddenly more people started to come forward remembering bits and pieces about them or about that toy box. Then it came out that some of these women who had been released from the toy box had went to the police, told them what happened, but nothing came of it. Once David and his significant other were arrested, the authorities would search their property, finding the toy box, as well as some photos of more victims that had been drugged and videotape recording of other victims. They discovered all of the horrible homemade torture devices some of these victims they couldn't track down and they began looking for human remains on the property but they never found any when they questioned david he never gave them any information about if he had murdered anybody or not but they found a diary that david was keeping about his victims what he did where he got them from and there was people in there that they never were able to find on top of that it talked about murdering and hiding bodies, leading the authorities to believe that there was a dumping site somewhere that David was using, but he wasn't budging and they couldn't find it and this diary never said anything about where it was. They would start to release some of these pictures of these women cropping out anything, you know, super inappropriate that they could to try and identify the women who were still alive that had been attacked and kept in the toy box. And that was when a woman named Kelly Garrett saw a video of herself. She knew it was her because of her tattoos. So she reached out to the police. She told them on July 24th, 1996, she was spending the night playing pool with her friend Jessie. That night, she had gotten into a fight with her husband and was just trying to blow off some steam and clear her head. And that was all that she remembered. After they confirmed that Kelly was indeed the woman in these videos, they would track down the friend she was playing pool with. This friend that Kelly was playing pool with that night's name was Jessie. Jessie was David's daughter. David's daughter, Jessie, 
had purposely roofied Kelly's drink and let her father know she had found her father another victim. David would pick this friend up and take her back to the toy box, where she would be fitted with that metal dog collar and raped and tortured by David, being kept on the same drugs that they had roofied her with the entire time. But David decided that he wasn't just going to let her go, and he decided to slit her throat and dump her drugged up bleeding body on the side of the road. But Kelly had survived. Once she was found and healed, she attempted to go home. Her husband though was under the impression that she ran away and cheated on him. So when she got home, he kicked her out and divorced her, not believing anything she was saying when she said that she couldn't remember a lot of things. Her brain was fuzzy and she didn't know where she was. Then she would remember bits and pieces coming back here and there, but not enough to make a definite story or to even know what happened to her. But as soon as she saw those tapes, all of it flooded back. Kelly was tortured in the toy box after trying to blow off steam with her friend, Jesse. And Jesse roofied her drink and gave her to her father. When they finally had enough evidence, the trials would start they would discover that there was a lot of women coming forward to testify against David. Unfortunately though, most of what they said could not be considered as fact because of the heavy drugs that they had been forced to consume, making it hard to remember a complete and total story of what had happened. Either way, the authorities could definitely find David on kidnapping and torture, not murder though. Because of the amount of women that they could confirm David had kidnapped though, they could make him spend the rest of his life in prison. They handed David 224 years in prison and his partner in crime, his significant other, would be handed only 36 years. She had a lesser sentence because she took a plea deal to testify against David. She would also bring up in court about 14 separate murders that David had participated in and that he had a dumping spot for these bodies. But because they could not find the dumping spot and the significant other didn't know where it was, they could not hold this as fact against David. And if this part doesn't make you mad, his daughter, who had roofied her friend and handed people over to her father on multiple different occasions, got given somewhere between two to nine years. She did have an additional five years on probation, and I understand that she was young and didn't do much, but two to nine years is not enough. She was literally handing David people, her friends over, knowing what was going to happen to them. She knew she was finding victims. I just feel like that was not a long enough sentence. But I did see at one point David's daughter Jessie had tried to inform the FBI that her father was kidnapping girls and selling them in Mexico. Nothing came about this though. So maybe they gave her a lesser sentence because of this. And it sounds like the FBI couldn't do anything because the information that Jessie had given them was so little they couldn't definitely point it out at David. David would die May 28th 
2002 at the age of 62 after only spending a single year in prison. He would die from a heart attack. They now believe he has murdered up to 60 women, all from either Arizona or New Mexico. But no bodies have ever been found, so they cannot tie any murders to him. David didn't get the time in prison he should have gotten. He got one single year after he spent years of torturing and kidnapping victims. I'm glad that he died of something terrible like a heart attack, but I just wish David spent longer in prison. That way he got some sort of punishment for murdering and torturing women. There may be false or misleading information throughout this podcast. All facts have been researched to the best of my abilities, but accidents do happen. If this is a story you are interested in knowing more about, I highly recommend doing your own research. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.